Hello, my rebels. Every day the media tells us more and more cases of the virus. But what is a case? Why are they doing it? What are they trying to prepare us for? What are they trying to whip up? I'll give you my thoughts on it. That's next, but can I invite you to become a Rebel News Plus subscriber? Because I show you about four or five different video clips in this podcast. And yeah, you'll be able to figure it out from the sound. But I really want you to see it, especially what's happening in Australia. Well, the videos out of there will make your eyes freeze and your hair stand up like a porcupine. Just go to rebelnews.com and click subscribe at eight bucks a month. That's a pretty good deal. Okay, here's today's show. Tonight, I know why politicians tried to scare everyone when the pandemic arrived in the spring, but why are they still trying to scare us now? It's September 22nd, and this is the Ezra LeVant Show. Why should others go to jail why? when you're a biggest carbon Ezra. consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Every day I get terrifying news about new virus cases. Cases, not illnesses, not people in the hospital, not people in intensive care, not people on a respirator or a ventilator. Remember those? That was the big panic six months ago. Here's a CBC story from April 3rd. Ontario needs 900 new ICU, that's intensive care unit beds, to cope with coming surge in COVID-19 patients, models suggest. So that's new beds, extra beds that were needed immediately, ICU, intensive care unit. It's not just a bed, of course, not just a place to sleep. It's a whole expensive complex suite, machines, ventilators, oxygen, complicated sensors. And of course, it's all in a hospital. Imagine trying to add 900 ICU beds to cope with the coming surge in a matter of days. Well, no problem. The government of Ontario didn't just add 900 acute care or intensive care beds. On April 16th, it announced this. Province adds more than 2,000 acute care and critical care beds and enacts pandemic staffing plans. Wow, I'll read some more. The province has added 1,035 acute care beds and 1,492 critical care beds and taken steps to ensure hospitals have the staff available to care for a sudden surge in patients. Pretty impressive, but remember, that's just what was added. There were a lot of beds in place before the pandemic. Take a look at these stats. As a result, Ontario has a total of 20,354 acute care beds, with a potential for another 4,205 more acute care beds by April 30th of Ontario's 3,504 critical care beds, 2,811 are now equipped with ventilators, up from 1,319 when the outbreak first started. More than 20,000 acute care beds? By the way, there are more than 250 different hospitals in Ontario. So just to recap, in early April, the CBC was panicking, saying Ontario needed 900 more beds, Doug Ford met that and raised it, adding more than 2,000 new beds, bringing the total to 20,000, of which 2,811 had ventilators. 
So how did it work out? Did they survive the surge? Well, look, reality didn't quite listen to the models from the experts and their panics. Look at this. As you can see by this chart of Ontario hospitalizations and ICU cases, the number of ICU beds, intensive care beds, needed in Ontario peaked just six days after that panic article in the CBC at a grand total of 264. I can't even find the maximum number who needed ventilators. It's typically a small fraction of the people in the ICU. But just for reference, in the entire province of Ontario today, there are a grand total of 11 people on a ventilator. 11. The province has 2,811 ventilators. Just in case, you know, the second surge and all that, that second wave and all that, models say, experts say and all that. Here's the Ontario graph for daily new cases, which is the only one the media is talking about. And for some reason, it's the very first graph on the Ontario statistics page. Then there's the absolutely useless total cases over time graph. You know that by definition, that number can never go down, right? It's like saying total number of Canadians who have ever had a traffic accident over time. You know that number will only grow, right? It cannot shrink, right? Over time, events only add up, they don't subtract. And the number is of no use in any way, is it? It's like saying, did you know that the total number of people who have ever died in the world, it's estimated to be over 100 billion people. And it's only growing. Does that make you feel better or worse? Would a graph of that help you in any way other than to know that the number is only growing? What a weird number to track. Completely useless in every way other than to give you an ominous feeling. It's the daily deaths number that's the key indicator. For weeks in Ontario, it's hovered around two, plus or minus. It's so tiny on the graph, isn't it? It's so hard to see. That's the whole province of Ontario, 14.5 million people. Here's a chart that makes it easier to see. Zero on some days, one or two on some days. Average age of the deceased is the mid-80s. I'm sorry to see it, but you know, again, don't mean to scare you, but um, did you know, according to Statistics Canada, about 100,000 Ontarians die every year from all causes? So if you got one or two a day from the pandemic, and you've got another 300 a day from all other things. Uh, for example, in Toronto, shootings are a bit of a problem. 173 people dead or injured from that this year so far, mostly young people who don't really die from the virus. I wonder why politicians prefer to fight an imaginary battle against a virus that peaked back in April as opposed to a real problem like gun violence that keeps going up. It's going up, the battle against the defeated virus is done, it's defeated. I've shown you the stats for Ontario pretty detailed, but it's the same or better pretty much across Canada. For example, the entire province of Saskatchewan, there is one person in intensive care. One person in a province of over a million people. So why is the panic being ratcheted up? Why the emphasis on cases? Which can mean anything. It can mean a false positive, for example, as in someone doesn't have the virus, but they take the test and the test accidentally says they have the virus. That's happening a lot. You know, I think a lot of people think that testing is going to really solve the whole problem, and it isn't. It's one component of a response. If you test somebody today, 
Uh, you only know if they're infected today. And in fact, if you're testing in a population that doesn't have very much COVID, you'll get false positives almost half the time. That's Ontario's Deputy Public Health Officer saying half of the tests are false positives. They're bragging about how many tests they're giving to people who don't have any symptoms. Why are we spending so much effort testing healthy people with no symptoms? Is it to generate false positives? Is it to instill fear? Is it to make jobs for schemers and scammers to keep the emergency going for the benefit of someone? Profiteers? I don't know. Why the renewed reinforcement? I mean, here in Ontario, Doug Ford, the Premier, he loves going to weddings with his friends. Here he is having a grand old time despite the lockdown. Isn't it odd that he's the one now ratcheting up rules for everyone else except him? We all know that a second wave of this virus is coming. We see it all over the world. This virus is still amongst us and it's spreading. So the only question left is how bad will the second wave be? And the answer to that question is up to all of us. It's up to you. It's up to the 14 and a half million people in this province. We've shown what we can achieve when we work together. Together, we got those numbers down. We flattened the curve on the first wave, but we're not out of the woods. And today's numbers, they're, they're a cause for concern for all of us. And let me be crystal clear. Every option is on the table. We will take every step necessary, including further shutdowns. In the second wave of COVID-19, it's a scenario that we have been preparing for all summer long. I don't get Doug Ford. His chief move is to insult people who aren't panicking like he wants them to, even though he himself obviously is not panicking in his real life, his personal life. He's going to weddings. Um, There was some car show, you know, where people have a show and shine. They bring their old cars or whatever. Ford called it a car race or something. I'm not sure there's actually any evidence of that it was racing illegally. And Ford just went nuts on those people. But those are his people, really his kind of people, or they used to be, not now. He's calling them dumb. He's saying they're deplorable. And then all of a sudden we, we hear what's happening. They, they gather, these organizers. And as for the organizers, you know something, guys? I, I don't get it. I, I just don't get it. If we weren't so backlogged on MRIs, I'd send you to the MRI to get your brain scanned because I just, I don't think there's anything in there. We, we get the protocols out there and, and they just blatantly ignore the people. Oh, and he's calling people concerned about their freedom. Yahoos. We, we have, you know, a bunch of yahoos out in the front of Queens Park sitting there protesting that the place isn't open as they're breaking the law and putting everyone in jeopardy, putting themselves in jeopardy, putting the the workers in jeopardy, and God forbid one of them end up in the hospital down the street. It's such an elitist thing when it's said by Hillary Clinton or Kathleen Wynne or the media party sneering at normal people for not wanting to uh, follow unscientific and irrational and arbitrary rules, rules that the ruling class itself doesn't follow. But since when does the head of Ford Nation mock his own people as dumb hicks. I know he gets praised by Justin Trudeau and the Toronto Star for that, but I'm not sure what voters think. I can take a guess what they'll think of this, though. Deploying police to enforce masks and social distancing, like I say, like the stats show, the pandemic is over. People aren't afraid enough, I guess, so why not have police go out there and make them afraid? 
This is what I've been worried about. We've seen it in other Commonwealth countries. Jacinda Ardern, the ghoulish prime minister of New Zealand, literally postponed her country's elections because of the pandemic. What a little fascist. Watch her here as she laughs about indefinitely imprisoning anyone who won't take a voluntary virus test. You said I wanted to, um, I've got a number of questions about people um, refuse, you know, what do we do if someone refuses to be tested? Well, they can't now. If someone refuses in our um, facilities to be tested, they have to keep staying. So they won't be able to leave after 14 days. They have to stay on for another 14 days. So it's a pretty good incentive. You either get your tests done and make sure you're cleared or we will keep you in a facility longer. So I think people, most people will look at that and say, I'll take the, I'll take the test. She's laughing there. That's New Zealand. Here's the state of Victoria in Southeast Australia. This is a 69 year old grandmother walking in the park. Why the handcuffs? Here's another Australian video. We're going to try to bleep out the swearing. A man was arrested for driving on the road, I kid you not. What are you going to say, mate? Go on. What do you got to say? Uh, uh, what What's the reason you're pulling me over for? Just we saw you driving a motor vehicle on a highway. Oh, driving a motor vehicle on a highway? Oh, mate, you're the best. You're f now, mate. No, it's not an offence. That is not offence. Right, let's just do this one at a time, please. No, right. nah, we will not be doing this. I pulled out on a what street? You're telling me a highway? Mm -hmm. One at a time, you've got four. What's your name there, mate? My name is Constable Singh. Thank you very much. And yours? Ada. Oh, you don't have a name here. You don't have a name here? And of course, our own reporter, Avi Yamini, was smashed to the ground. It was quite peaceful until... They've got us! Like here, for any purpose or reason? Avi, they've got us! Anyone arrest? <laughs> but this guy here is going to be placed under arrest right now. Well, I'm under arrest. Right. 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 I am media. I am media. And the United Kingdom is just awful. They've got a bizarre rule of six, just arbitrary. If you have five people in your family, you can't have your grandparents come over together. One has to wait out in the car. I'm serious. That is a rule. There's massive 10,000 pound fines. It's almost 20 grand Canadian. Unless you're with Black Lives Matter, then no problem. Have a big meetup as you want. Seriously, here's a peaceful anti-lockdown protest in Trafalgar Square. Look at the riot police smash in. Compare that to the same UK police during the pandemic at a Black Lives Matter protest. Yeah, I guess the virus only attacks conservatives or something. What on earth is happening over there? But 
Of course, why would we be immune to it here? We have the same source of law, the same culture and history when it comes to policing and our courts and freedom. So if New Zealand, Australia, the UK can all collapse, can we? I expect it to start happening now. The second wave drumbeat is high for the pandemic. Cases, cases are rising, cases, cases, cases. I don't see any opposition uh, from, you know, the opposition parties. Have you? The media is totally on board. In fact, they're just screaming for more. And the police here, well, we've shown you how Canadian police can be political. I'm worried. Seriously, how long until you see this sort of thing? Arresting a woman, bursting into her home because she made a Facebook post against the lockdown. This is from Australia. Oh, okay. well, take it easy. What's Simulation this about? Do I have face- an ultrasound Just let me in an hour? Let me finish and I'll explain. In relation to a Facebook post, in relation to a lockdown protest you put on for Saturday. Yeah, and I wasn't breaking any laws by doing that. You are, that. actually. You are breaking all. That's why I'm arresting you. In relation to in front How of can you children, arrest her? In That's... front of my two children. Can't you just say to her, take the post down? Like, come I'm on. I'm happy to delete the post. Yeah. This is ridiculous. Right. Yeah. But I have to give you these caution and rights. Do you understand? Yeah, that's fine. Not, like, I'm happy to delete to the post. This is anything? ridiculous. Like, I, this is in front of my... That's Maybe fine. Evidence. I think that's coming to Canada. Why wouldn't it? Why... Would it only infect other Commonwealth countries and not us? The virus of fascism, I mean. The media is lusting for that. There's an irrational hatred towards normal people who aren't loving the pandemic panic. Take a look at this in the Toronto Star just yesterday. Spot someone not wearing a mask? Here's what you should and shouldn't do. I'll read some of it. It's by Karen Liu, culture reporter. My current strategy in encouraging non-mask compliant strangers To put on a mask is as follows. Give them a dirty look and then briskly walk past them in a big curve as if they have a magnetic force field that repels everything. Not surprisingly, it doesn't work. Either they don't notice, don't care, or think I'm smizing. Smizing is a made-up word which means smiling with your eyes. That actually makes me laugh because, of course, you can't really communicate much, can you, when you're wearing a muzzle. So, Much of our communication is nonverbal, facial expressions, a smile, a fake smile, a scowl. Try doing any of that with a mask on. The Toronto Star writer here is trying to show how woke he is. He's actually showing how rude he is, how antisocial he is, how much of a scold and a snitch he is, but really, how dumb he is. He has lost the ability to communicate uh, with body language, with facial expressions. He's not saying anything, and he's wondering why he can't communicate, and he's asking for help, but he doesn't even realize it's because of the mask he's wearing that no one can understand the scowl on his face. He lacks the courage to actually say anything, and his scowl doesn't work from behind a mask. What an idiot. Let me read some more from his column. Fortunately, the majority of people I see when outside have been following public health guidelines. But what should I do, if anything at all, when I see that one person not wearing a mask or physically distancing? I want to look out for the safety of those around me. After all, we're supposed to be in this COVID-19 pandemic together, right? Uh, Of course, in in Toronto, it's illegal to ask someone why they're exempt. Um, I guess he doesn't know that. uh, um, There are plenty of reasons not to wear a mask. And if you are exempt, and there's a bunch of reasons, it is actually illegal for some busybody, whether it's a cop, or a storekeeper, or a Toronto Star snitch asking you why? It would be like asking someone in a wheelchair, prove you're disabled, get out of that wheelchair, prove you're not, that's creepy. Look at this weirdo, I'll read some more. 
I asked my Twitter followers what they do when coming across someone not physically distancing or wearing a mask. Most replied they keep their distance and move on, adding it's not worth it to risk having an angry individual get close to their face. Others said they have tried to tell people to mask up but were ignored. When it comes to a business, some just don't shop there anymore if they don't feel safe. Sounds like this reporter's friends are actually smarter than him. If you're so afraid yourself, don't go out. I thought masks were supposed to make you safe, though. Not wanting a conflict with another citizen is a good idea. That's normal. But I think the scolds and the snitches are probably the abusive ones more often than not. Remember this? Quit policing other people. Quit policing other people. Get out of go. I gotta go this way. I gotta go this way. Move your stupid ass and go. Can someone call the police, please? Oh, yeah. No, for harassment and for people policing other people. You can't actually call the police on something. Yes, you can. It's part of a bylaw. Yeah, I can tell those ladies are worried about their health. Uh, get this. University of Toronto psychology professor Steve Jordans says even with the best intentions, it's easy to come off as accusatory when asking someone to wear a mask. When confronted, people tend to have a flight-or-fight response, and as we've seen through countless viral videos, a few have opted for the latter. I think the psychology professor is engaging in projection here. He's saying the normal people are afraid, and the masked people are the normal sane ones. <laughs> I'm not sure about that, Chief. I'll read some more. Jordan says there's a temptation to automatically think of a non-mask wearer as a conspiracy theorist who doesn't believe in COVID-19, and while there are people that fit that description, there are also individuals who might still be in a state of denial that a pandemic is happening after going through personal trauma, such as losing a job or a family member. <clears throat> I don't think anyone doesn't believe COVID-19 exists. I think a lot of people believe it's not a statistical danger anymore because it's not mathematically as to conspiracy theories. I wonder what the good doctor here thinks about how China explained the virus and how it spread. I wonder if he believes them and thinks mask skeptics are the naive ones. I wonder if he thinks that Trudeau and Patty Hyde, and Theresa Tam have done everything just right and China's World Health Organization um, is just right on top of things. If you think China and the World Health Organization and Patty Hyde and Theresa Tam and Justin Trudeau have been telling the truth, you probably believe that Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. I wouldn't accuse other people of conspiracy theories. I'll read some more. To some extent, we lost our previous way of life, and wearing a mask is associated with accepting that life isn't going to be the same, he said. For some people, that is hard to accept. I'll give the good doctor that one. He seems to be happy to accept it, though. I'm not going to read any more of this Toronto Star column to you. It's not really a piece about morality or ethics, because the advice is to marginalize and demonize and harass people, many of whom have lawful mask exemptions. It's basically, they're trying to pick on people who have asthma or respiratory problems. It's, it's not really a piece about morality. It's not a piece about legality. Like I say, every mask bylaw in Canada has exemptions. In Toronto, you're not allowed to ask people to prove they're exempt. It's not a piece about science, is it? No one is dying from this virus anymore. In all of Ontario, maybe one or two people a day Average age, mid-80s. I checked, there hasn't been a death in Toronto since August. This column isn't about any of that. It's about preparing society, conditioning people for the second wave, not the second wave of the pandemic. That's not coming, folks. It's about the second wave of police and politicians and bureaucrats and scolds going full Australian on you.
It's about the war against you by the ruling class that's been enjoying itself just a little too much these past six months. Stay with us for more. Well, get ready for the bad news. Justin Trudeau's uh, going to have the Governor General read his throne speech. I can only imagine how much spending and a Green New Deal. He's going to try and echo the AOC wing of the Democrats in the states. Spending's no object, taxing's no object. And as they say, never let a crisis go to waste. I think that's what we see from Trudeau. At the same time, we see so-called recovery councils uh, with people who've never run a business in their life, people like Gerald Butts, the disgraced former aide to Justin Trudeau. I see he's putting his oar back into the water with lots of advice for green spending and taxes. I'm terrified. Even Christia Freeland, who's supposed to be the more moderate member of cabinet, is talking about decarbonizing the country. So I was delighted to see a press conference today by a pro-business group of people who actually run businesses. They're called Canadians for a Responsible Recovery, and there's a lot of familiar names in the group. Dan McTague, the moderate liberal. Patrick Moore, our friend, the uh, co-founder of Greenpeace. And our next guest, Catherine Swift, who has spent her life being an advocate for small businesses. And she joins us now via Skype. Great to see you again, Catherine. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. My pleasure, as always, Ezra. Well, thanks for being here. Um, this is sort of a pre-buttal, right? It's not a rebuttal. It's a, it's a <laughs> first strike against Trudeau and his throne speech and some of these uh, pro-government, pro-spending NGOs. Tell me a little bit more about Canadians for a Responsible Recovery. That's your group. Yeah, well, it started off actually with um, an organization called Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers um, and Businesses of Canada. Now, they started off in Ontario, but they branched out nationally. And the impetus for it was the massively increased hydro rates in Ontario, which, of course, more than doubled in many instances uh, under the Green Energy Act back in 2009. It was introduced and in subsequent years. And the, a lot of these businesses, and I know many of the owners, and they're you know good employers, they, they tend to have anywhere from about 50 to several hundred employees. Um, they, they, some of them were, were driven almost out of business or out of the country. Uh, and not not willingly. Uh, some of them I have relocated simply because they the alternative was they were not going to be in business at all. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the the really alarming. There's a lot of alarming things here. But but this particular group, and as you mentioned, they're business owners. They're the ones that are <laughs> dealing with the real issues every single day, employing lots of people, paying lots of taxes. And when when we saw this group that's called the Resilient Recovery Group, right? And of course it is. It's Gerald Butts. It's it's uh, a number of other. Bruce Lurie is another one. Basically, a lot of the architects of the Green Energy Act in Ontario are involved yet again. And of course, what they're basically trying to do is extend the complete devastation that the Green Energy Act uh, had in Ontario to the whole country. Yeah. And it's it's there's there's just so many worrisome things here and elements to it that you know, that, that one could discuss. But I think the bottom line, the real bottom line here is that 
what and we'll see we'll see in the throne speech we haven't seen it yet but all indications are that the trudeau government is going to go all in on a so-called green recovery mm. which basically means that uh, businesses and organizations and entities that take in way more of our tax dollars than they will ever actually produce are the ones that are going to be in charge of this and the businesses such as in the group that I'm associated with, um, the ones that actually produce tax dollars, create real live jobs that don't have to be subsidized uh, by the by the FISC, um, they're the ones that are going to be disadvantaged. And if we can just take the experience in Ontario, and I, I recently read the, the Resilient Recovery Group's plans, and by the way, they want $55 billion, <laughs> is their latest way. ask, okay. not, not chump change exactly. Um, they want a whole whack of our money. Uh, and they make all the same claims in what they're currently proposing to do to Canada that the Green Energy Act made in Ontario back years ago. All these green jobs are going to be created. All this prosperity is going to be created and so on. Of course, absolutely zero of that ever came to pass. Yeah. And how, you know, you, you feel you feel kind of feel like Charlie Brown and Lucy with the football, yeah. you know? When does Charlie Brown smarten up? When do we Canadian taxpayers smarten up and realize that these groups do not have our best interests at yeah. heart? Mind you, they're doing very well financially yeah. for their own their own, you know, their pockets are oh, being yeah. lined very, very substantially. When do we smarten up and realize that these promises that have been made for years and years and years by, and we see it around the world, it's not just in Canada, but in Canada, like I say, we have this example in Ontario where none of the commitments, none of the promises ever came to pass. In fact, major damage was done to average Ontarians, average taxpayers, and we're starting to see it nationally with the carbon tax, of course, has hurt, you know, for a government that says it, it wants to support the middle class, it's hurt the middle class badly. And these things that they're proposing now uh, to unfold in the future, supposedly to get us out of our pandemic slump, um, will not only not get us out of the pandemic slump, but worsen the situation and hurt the businesses that actually do contribute to Canada's bottom line. Yeah, it's so absurd to focus on greenhouse gas emissions as if that's in the top 20 uh, list of concerns for ordinary Canadians. I predict that when the measurements are in, in a year or so, we'll see that the pandemic lockdown actually had <clears throat> the greatest diminishment of global warming gases, greenhouse gases, in maybe ever, because no one was driving, factories were shut down, no one was working, the economy ground to a halt, more than a million Canadians thrown out of work. It's what the left calls degrowth. Even population uh, immigration was halted. So that's the kind of extreme catastrophic shock to our modern industrial commercial life needed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So it's simply impossible to grow the economy, get people back to work and be happy again without emissions rising. So my point is having Gerald Butts or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in charge of a recovery, they don't want a recovery. They don't believe in the concept of growth because growth means more energy use. And they actually like the lockdown because it's a form of deindustrialization. What do you think of that? 
Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of truth there, sadly. And and yes, I, I think if people really do want to see what decarbonization looks like, let's see what we've endured over the last few months with the pandemic, yeah. where tons of people have suffered horribly. Uh, granted, not the not the butts and and, and their uh, right. their gang, not public sector workers either, of course, because yeah. they've all continued to make exactly the same money for not right. working as they would have if they if they actually were working. They love it. It's been free, vaca- free paid vacations oh, for the government it's, sector. It's, they've it's, loved the last it's, six it's months. It's unbelievable. It's really laughable in a sick in a sick kind of way. Yeah. But you know, Ezra, I I think also one thing that should be should be said is that this whole climate debate has been presented as such a polarized you're either on or you're off you know there's no middle ground and i think this is something that this group that i'm with the ccmbc wants to get across is that there are ways to do very sensible things for the climate in fact much more sensible than the the radical uh greenies would like to implement without impoverishing everybody else yeah. and and i think this is the this this is an important consideration it doesn't mean you're saying there aren't issues that we should deal with with the climate of course there are and frankly there probably always have been but we can do that at much less cost and and difficulty imposed on on everyone else than has been the case to date and the green energy act in ontario is a classic example mm-hmm. for the cost that and and Think that government, that liberal government of Dalton McGuinty at the time, signed 40-year contracts. Yeah. There were 40-year contracts. How absurd! Yeah. Tying the hands of governments for the foreseeable future—that's that kind of thing should be illegal, in my opinion. But you know, the amount, the amount of of economic loss, job loss difficulty uh, imposition of high unnecessarily high costs for things like hydro which nobody can really live without in this country uh, on on average people there have been studies that have shown the same environmental benefits which were there to be fair but they weren't massive the same environmental benefits could have been achieved at about one tenth of the cost yeah. so that's the kind of solutions that we're looking at sensible solutions not shutting down the economy mm-hmm. not alienating businesses and investment that create wealth create tax dollars and create jobs in canada but rather you know having having a middle ground where yes you're doing some sensible things that actually accomplish something for the environment but at a cost that is sustainable for our country and our economy i think i'm more conservative than you on that i i don't think that um carbon emissions are actually a problem. I believe in fighting real pollution, particulate pollution. Um, I want clean air, clean water, clean soil, but carbon dioxide itself, I think, is the stuff of life. And, and uh, But let's set that aside for a second. And I don't disagree with you there, Ezra, because yeah. I was... I was referring to it writ large right you know yes we but, do have an issue with plastics in our waterways you know and well, but again even that's the, the more notion of a of using, problem in china and india and africa well precisely it's it's not yeah. canada that is it is doing the most most of this uh either and that's that's a whole other element of this debate is why are we the masochists of the world in canada you know punishing ourselves mightily for yeah. things that frankly we can't even influence very yeah. much well trudeau is the king of richard signaling now i i have in my hand here your your plan for canadians for responsible recovery and you've got six key points and i want to whip through them let me read the title of each of these six to you and you give me a one sentence explanation so i want to be able to get through all six So these will be short snappers. Uh, Your first one is, we have to curtail public spending 
not expanded. Give me a soundbite on that. Well, frankly, the fact that that should even need explanation yeah. is, well, is yeah, I guess, I mean, beyond if only Trudeau me. would read it. Okay, the second point, we have to move away from arbitrary emission reduction targets. That, that's the same thing. I mean, it's, it's just not the priority now. No, and not only that, but le again, and, and a lot of this gets down to believing in fantasy land mm -hmm. or believing in facts. Uh, every single uh, international climate accord has had targets that were never met by anybody. Right. At what point do we say, mm -hmm. um, this is not going to happen? Uh, why do we adopt these things? And it's not just Canada, again, right. it's other countries as well agree to these things and then never achieve them. Right. Why don't we do something real that's measurable and actually accomplished instead of these foolish things that aren't achievable and yet, at least in Canada, we're implementing policies that hurt people, supposedly in the name of things like the Paris Accord. Point three, we have to get back to work. We cannot continue to live with an economic lockdown. Are you worried about a second wave of lockdowns in Canada? Yeah, very much so, very much so. And and uh, again, uh, we, we have seen governments spend tons of our money that, that is going to at some point have to be paid back in the future by future generations. I mean, this is a, a horrendous situation for, I mean, I'm, I'm not young anymore, so I won't probably have to deal with this very much, but our kids and our grandkids and on and on are going to have to deal with this. So yes, uh, another, another lockdown, um, uh, I think would be uh, inexcusable. And we're looking at international examples like Sweden, which did certainly did have some relatively high death rates, but they didn't shut down their economy. And now, several months later, we're seeing that uh, they their, their actual experience with the pandemic isn't that different from other countries. But the, because they didn't shut down their economy, they didn't have that horrendous uh, economic mess to try to clean up. Well, not just economic mess. When you shut down the economy, you have other illnesses that are not treated, oh. depression that's created. Yes. Point four, we have to reduce the regulatory burden on work. That's pretty clear. Point five, Canada must ensure that the critical supply chain items are manufactured in Canada. What do you mean by that? Well, that, that gets to the whole uh, personal protective equipment and other related uh, matters that we, we saw how vulnerable Canada was. And we had, of course, government departments and agencies that were supposedly taking care of this. And remember early on in the pandemic, Ezra, you remember we had, we had the chief health officials in Ottawa telling us, oh, we dealt with SARS. So yeah. we're really ready for yeah. this. Of course, it was total baloney. Yeah. Uh, we're not. So let's not put ourselves in that position yeah. again is what that's all about. And the sixth point in your plan is Canadians should acknowledge the contribution of our resource sector to our Canadian economy and celebrate it. I'm worried because I heard Christopher Freeland talk about decarbonizing the economy. You can't have any mining, oil and gas, petrochemicals, plastics. Um, even forestry is, uh, you know, so many outdoor, even agriculture are energy intensive. I'm worried that they're gonna go for that virtue signal globally and kill our key resource industries. Yeah, uh, that's a lot of people are worried about that. And I, I think a lot of people don't realize in Canada that aren't that close to it perhaps, 
how much our economy is heavily dependent on that. And frankly, we see other countries around the world. I, I, I love how some of the green the green acolytes like to talk about countries like Norway, who are doing some very good things on the social policy front, but are exploiting their oil resources yeah. like nobody's business. Yeah. Uh, you know, why, again, why are we in Canada trying to punish ourselves our our god-given wealth that we have of natural resources in Canada why are we not uh sensibly using that to our advantage and and it 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 it, it blows your mind but i think t- another point too is that some people in various parts of the country think oh this is alberta's problem or maybe a little bit saskatchewan's problem no it is the whole country's problem so many manufacturers uh, and other businesses are heavily dependent on what happens in our resource sector it affects jobs in ontario we saw in newfoundland with that husky project that recently um has been postponed and possibly cancelled uh newfoundland horribly affected by what's happening in the resource sector in Canada as well. So nobody is exempt here. And to 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 not take advantage in a, in a sensible way of the wealth that we have been given in resources is pure foolishness and will beggar a lot of Canada. Yeah. Well, great to talk with you today, Catherine Schiff. Nice to see you again. Thanks for spending so much time with us. My pleasure, Ezra. All right, there you have it. Uh, The website, if you want to look at these six points and learn more, is responsiblerecovery.ca. Stay with us. More ahead. Hey, welcome back on my monologue on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Stephen writes, Democrats don't want a new judge appointed until after a new president is elected because they say it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dying wish. The Republicans want to appoint one now because it's in their constitution and that's how you run a country. Yeah, this, this Make-A-Wish Foundation idea, that's not how it works. I don't even know if I believe that. Her last wish was, really? I, I'm not quite sure if that's true. Ruth Bader Ginsburg seemed to be against other kooky ideas on the far left, like packing the court, as in adding you know four, five, six new judges, all Democrats. I, I'm not sure if she was in this unconstitutional uh, campaign that the Democrats are in now. Gandor writes, the elephant in the room there is that judges are politically biased. The compass must be the law, not political opinion. Well, I think our judges up here in Canada are just as biased, even more so. They're political, just like they are down there. They're just not politically accountable. We don't have nomination hearings in Canada, and it's almost never that a judge is withdrawn after being proposed. It happens in the United States all the time. The American system is atrocious, but if you can believe it, ours is worse. That's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, good night, and keep fighting for freedom.